Good, good morning. We are, uh, we are honored to have with us uh, this morning uh, the Reverend Dr. Gerald McDermott. Uh, Dr. McDermott has been putting up with me all weekend. Uh, he was the keynote speaker for our uh, uh, regional meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society down at St. Mary's. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, all the folks here at New Hope who helped to make that happen, especially uh, Melissa and Bruce and uh, Keith. Uh, and uh, for, for helping out, and, and Joe gave us moral support yesterday, too, and uh, it was, I, I think, a, a terrific opportunity to gather some folks together, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled we were able to do it, and, and uh, we're grateful that uh, Jerry and his wife, Jean, are able to be with us. Uh, Gerald McDermott is the Jordan Trexler Professor of Religion at Roanoke College, and uh, in addition to being a leading authority in the work of Jonathan Edwards, he has been an active participant uh, in uh, both interfaith and ecumenical uh, activity as a thoroughgoing evangelical. And uh, he and his wife have three kids and seven grandkids. We're thrilled to have him this morning. Will you please welcome Gerald McDermott. Well, thank you, Jason, very much. I'm thrilled to be here. It's a beautiful church you have, not only the physical and historic beauty, but also the beauty of the Holy Spirit that I sense in you. And I'm impressed that you are a serious, a, a church of serious disciples going through Romans verse by verse for several years now, it sounds like. <laughs> wow, that is really impressive. And I have never before in my life been given an invitation. I've spoken in a lot of churches. I've never been given an invitation to speak on two verses, which actually was wonderful because it gives me the opportunity uh, to go a little bit deeper than normally. So um, if you'd open your Bibles uh, to the two verses, and you probably know what they are, Romans 11, verses 11 and 12. Romans 11, verses 11 and 12. Now I'm going to be reading the ESV version. I don't know what version you have there in your pews, so it, it might be different from what you see. So Romans 11, um, starting at verse 11. So I ask, did they, and of course the they means the non-Messianic Jews, did they, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, will their full inclusion mean? Now, the title of this sermon is The Mystery of Israel. Paul, as you probably know from having uh, listened to excellent teaching and preaching on Romans the last months, you probably know in these three chapters, 9, 10, 11, Paul's burden is to try to figure out why it is in God's providence that most of his fellow Jews, not all, most of his fellow Jews have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah. This is the mystery of Israel. And many Christians today ask the same question. Why don't Jews get it? Why don't they see 
all these Old Testament prophecies, particularly passages like Isaiah 53, where it talks about a suffering servant who will take upon himself the sins of Israel and the world and be put to death and describe the torture that comes before the death in such seemingly accurate ways. Why don't our Jewish brothers and sisters see that? Well, this is what Paul is wrestling with in these three chapters, 9 through 11. And he calls it a mystery in verse 25 of chapter 11, if you look ahead. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. And then he specifies what the mystery is. is A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now today, in these two verses, 11 and 12, Paul, in these two verses, is unpacking how, or he's explaining in detail, in mysterious detail, in puzzling detail, but it's clear for him. And it's clear, I think, for many of his listeners at the time in Rome, how God works with Jews as opposed to Gentiles and works with them together, Jews and Gentiles. And what, what he tells us here is that God brings salvation to each community, the community of the Gentiles and the community of the Jews, through hardening one community at a time. And then he makes the hardened community jealous of the other community. That's God's mysterious way. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Torah and Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant in the New Testament, which is the New Testament. There are things in here that are often very difficult, like today, this passage, and we pray that you'd shine light on your words so that we might see your beauty and the beauty and the mystery, the beauty of the mysteries of your providence in working with your peoples, Jews and Gentiles. In Jesus, in Yeshua's name, amen. So verse 11, we'll start. Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble so that they might fall? That is... Now here Paul is thinking about all of his fellow Jews who have not accepted Yeshua as Messiah, Messiah. So he's saying, is God so disgusted with them that he's going to destroy them? Now this is a plausible question for a Jew to ask because God had done something like that several times in the past. You remember in the days of Noah, God was so disgusted with the world. I mean, it wasn't just the the, the uh, Jews then, uh, there really were no Jews per se at that point. But he was so disgusted with the world in the days of Noah, he destroyed all the world except for Noah and his family. So God had done this before. And then Paul surely knew, all Jews knew, about Sodom and Gomorrah. That because Sodom and Gomorrah had resisted God's word, um, God poured out destruction upon them. So was he going to do this now to Israel because most of Israel had rejected his son, the Messiah? Well, he answers it in verse 11b. He says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the, gen 
um, to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, before we get into what this means, jealousy, and how that works, presuming that the vast majority of the Jews in Paul's day rejected Yeshua, I need to say that probably what you're imagining, or well, you probably don't because of your excellent teaching here the last two years on Romans, but most Christians are wrong in their imaginings of how many Jews rejected Yeshua in Paul's generation. Myriads, and that's the Greek word that is used in Acts of the Apostles by Luke when he records a conversation that James and the elders and the other Jewish elders in Jerusalem had with Paul in Acts 21, verse 20, he said, Myriades, that's plural, of Jews or Judeans, I'll talk about that in a second, have accepted, uh, literally it says, Paul, Paul, see how many myriades uh, among the Eudaios, which can be translated either Jews or Judeans. I think here it's Judeans, not Jews, um, who have become believers that Yeshua is Meshiach, that Jesus is Messiah. Now, one myriad is 10,000. James says, see how many myriades, that's plural, a minimum of 20,000 of the Judeans. Why Judeans? Because um, in, you know, you know, in the context, he's talking about those around here in Judea in what was then sort of the central part of the Israelite uh, nation. He wasn't talking about uh, Samaria, and we know Samaritans, uh, some Samaritans had come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. He wasn't talking about Galilee, I don't think, and there were probably thousands and thousands of Jews up there and Gentiles up there in, way, way up north in the Galilee who had accepted Jesus as, as Messiah. He was probably talking about Judea, tens of thousands, at least 20,000, 20,000 minimum. You know, that's only two uh, myriads had accepted Jesus as their Messiah down here in Judea. And by the way, especially in the Gospel of John, I am convinced most of the time when, when you hear John talking about the Jews rejecting Jesus, no, it's not the Jews, it's the same word, eudaioi, that can also be translated Judeans. He's talking about the Judean leadership down in Judea, you know, the temple leadership and all the priests and so forth who were associated uh, with the Roman leadership, uh, they were in cahoots with the Romans. Uh, John is primarily condemning the Judeans who are persecuting Jesus and his followers, not Jews. After all, John himself is a Jew, and all the apostles were Jews. That's why it's often said that John is such an, you know, the Gospel of John is such an anti-Semitic text. It's not. It's, it, and, and much of that is based upon a mistranslation of that word eudaioi. So here it's Judeo also, and I think it's among the Judeans. See how many tens of thousands of the, Jude, of the Judeans, Jews, who have also become believers. So God, in his working with, with Israel, he always leaves a remnant after he punishes a majority, and you know, and the remnant are punished too. You know, they receive the discipline of the Lord along with the majority. 
And, and God's principle is always to leave a remnant, and he left a remnant here in the first century. But, but that remnant, uh, I want you to know, and maybe you know this already, was far larger than most Christians have ever imagined. There were, that is, there were far more Jews in first century Palestine who accepted Yeshua as their Messiah than most Christians have ever imagined. Okay. But still, it, it's only a remnant. It's less than 50%. And this gives Paul anguish. As he says in chapter 9, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I, would, I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So yes, there are tens of thousands of my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who have seen that Jesus is the Messiah, but there are more tens of thousands who haven't. And it causes Paul unceasing anguish, and this is his burden. This is his number one burden in chapters 9 through 11 in Romans, trying to answer this question, why, why, what is God doing here? And he really summarizes it in these two verses that we're looking at today. And Paul, what, what he does to answer this question, why have most of my kinsmen not seen that Jesus is the Messiah? Uh, to answer this question, he goes back to pa the past history of Israel uh, to explain. He goes back to Israel's apostasy in the wilderness of Sinai. You know, the 40 years of wandering? In chapter 10, verse 19 of Romans, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 21. There, he says, well, if you look at 10, 19, he says, um, um, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Now, this is in the context, and this is back in Deuteronomy 32. This is in the context of Israel rejecting not God's son, but God is the father back then. And being tempted by the surrounding cultures. Just as we adopted sons and daughters of Israel are today, tempted by our surrounding culture. And, and it seems to be in this context, the surrounding culture was Midianite culture. This is, the, this is when Balaam rises up as a false prophet, remember? You know, Balaam with the talking ass? And, and Jude tells us that Balaam led Israel into idolatry and sexual immorality. Led Israel into these things. So this is the context, probably, that Moses is talking about. And, and what happens is, God becomes jealous of his bride, Israel, because Israel has gone after other husbands, in this case, the gods of Midian, and so God gives them up to their idolatries. He lets them go. And, they, and the Midianites come and attack the armies of the fledgling Israel, and, and brutally defeats them, kills thousands and thousands. And so then in the aftermath of defeat, Israel becomes jealous of the victory 
of the Midianites and comes to repentance and wants to go back to her former husband and father, Yahweh. So notice that Moses says here, I will make you jealous. And this is where Paul gets this concept of jealousy from. Moses says, I will make you, Israel, a jealous of those who are not a nation. Midian. Uh, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So, Paul's saying, God's doing the same thing now in the first century that he did in the past history of Israel. Uh, that is, um, uh, he's giving Israel up to a kind of defeat, a spiritual defeat, to make Israel jealous of those who have been victors. In this case, the Gentiles, victors spiritually, because they have found Israel's Messiah and, and, and have adopted as their Messiah, or they've been adopted into the covenant, so they might enjoy the blessings, the victory, as it were, of Israel's Messiah. So Paul says in 11b here, he says, Rather through, through, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So the, the riches in Messiah Jesus that the Gentiles are now enjoying in the first century and the Jews are looking on, God is doing that to try to make the Jews Israel jealous. Now, what about hardening? What is this all about? You know, this is very difficult for us moderns and postmoderns to understand. It makes it sound like God is uh, unfair. Makes it sound like God is violating free will. Our, our free will, he hardens people's hearts? This is a very common concept in the Old Testament. And it basically means God giving people up to their desires, as we just mentioned a couple minutes ago. Uh, what God does when people start to have desires that, takes, that take them away from him, he says, okay, you have this rebellious, idolatrous, uh, unfaithful desire to go away from me and follow the other gods. I, I mean, not that there are other uh, creators and redeemers, but the other false spirits of the world, he says, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Follow your desires. See what happens. And so they follow their desires, and they start to practice sin that they're led into by these dark spirits, and they practice in their sin. And practice leads to habits, habits of the heart. That then when they try when they find the natural and spiritual consequences of their sins bring suffering, they try to turn around, you know, make New Year's resolutions, and they find out, whoa, that habit is so strong inside of me that I cannot break it. You know, I'm sure you're always successful in following through on your New Year's, New Year's resolutions, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, especially if I've got habits in my heart. My heart has been hardened in these habits. This is what hardening means. As I read the Old Testament story. Um, so it's not that God causes sin 
It's that God permits people to continue to follow their sinful desires, which then, then become habits, and thus, that's, that's what hardening means. And, you know, the perfect example is Pharaoh, right? We all, or many Christians and, and, and Jews, struggle with this. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Doesn't that seem unfair? Well, if you look closely at the Exodus text, you discover that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. That's what the text says. And later, then, it talks about God hardening his heart. In other words, Pharaoh decided to resist the word of God that was coming through Moses. And he kept on resisting, so it became a habit. He hardened his his resistance, which at first might have been weak, then became hardened uh, because of practicing over and over again. And then... God says, okay, I'm going to let him continue in this hardness of heart. And that's, I believe, what Scripture means by God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So God's not being unfair. He's not violating free will. In fact, it's, it's a colossal respect for free will. I will let you continue in your free, sinful desires and just see what that's going to do for you. Just try to get out of it after a few months or a few years and try to change direction. You know, you know, good luck, so to speak. That's God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Abandoning, so, so God, God hardening people's hearts, you know, heart, you know, hardening Israel and hardening the Gentiles for a long time is, is, means, means basically God abandoning a people, a person, to its own desires. God lets go and says, okay, go ahead. Do what you want. And you see this in Romans 1. God gave them up. You know, you know um, he says about all humanity in Romans 1. Uh, our primal sin was rejecting God to be God over us and not giving thanks to him. And, and so over and over again in Romans 1, it says, so God gave them up to their desires. God colossally respecting free will. I'll give you up to your free will to continue in those desires and see what that gets you to. How's it doing for you? So, now, one more explanation about hardening of heart. Uh, Paul says in verse 25, this is the mystery. This is the mystery that, that God has, that, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel till the fullness of the Gentiles. Uh, has come. The rabbis in the first century taught that now they they talked about the fact that Israel is in a bad spiritual state. That you know that, that we Jews are not following Yahweh. We're, we are light years from, from the kind of circumcision of the heart that God demands of us. And they were bemoaning the sin in Israel and constantly calling for their, their, their Jewish members of the synagogues uh, to repent and turn back to the God of Israel and, and give him your whole heart instead of just part of your heart or part of your devotion, instead, instead of just external. You know, give your heart. And, and many of these rabbis, by the way, were, uh, were of the Pharisaic school. Paul was raised in the Pharisaic school. Um, 
Um, Jesus was educated in the Pharisaic school. They weren't just about externals. Uh, contrary to what, what, not this pastor, but contrary to what other pastors have taught. Um, and, the, and the rabbis generally agree that when the day comes that Israel does turn the vast majority back to Yahweh and gives, is, and gives Yahweh their whole heart, then the end of the world, then the Messianic age is going to start, the age to come, and the end of the world will come. Well, uh, the end of this world, and then it will be made over into the Messianic world, you know, the new heaven and the new earth. So, what Paul is saying is that it's a good thing that all of Israel has not has not recognized Jesus as Messiah because if they did it would be the end of the world and there'd be no more chance for the Gentiles to come in as associate members as adopted sons and daughters of, of the covenant of Abraham. So for the sake of the Gentiles and all the future Gen Gentiles who are, who are going to be born God has poured out, and of course, respecting free will, a partial hardening upon the Jews because he had to, because a lot of the Jews, these myriads of Jews, were recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. And if that continued and started to multiply and snowball, it would bring the end of the world. And God's purpose in raising up Israel was that Israel would be a light to the nations. And that hasn't happened yet. For Israel to be a light to the nations, God had to, had, had, to, had, had to put a halt, as it were, to Jewish revival so that there'd be a partial hardening so the Jews would not come to Jesus as Messiah and bring the end of the world. A partial hardening to open up room, time, and space, as it were, for the future history of all the Gentiles to be brought in, in, into the Jewish covenant with Abraham. Now, what about fullness of the Gentiles? What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean every last Gentile. As we've seen in the last 2,000 years, this is the time of the Gentiles, when most of the church is made up of Gentiles. And it certainly doesn't mean every last Gentile has come to recognize Jesus as Messiah. But it means, an over, it, um, it means huge, huge numbers, millions, billions of Gentiles who have come to recognize that, that the Jewish Messiah is also theirs. Um, now, in chapter 26 of this chapter, he says, you know, partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in which hasn't been reached yet. That is, God has determined ahead of time the precise number of all the Gentiles who will come to see Jesus. That's, that's the absolute fullness of the Gentiles. That hasn't come yet. And until that comes, the partial hardening upon Israel is still there. And in, the, and in this way, Paul says in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Now, does that mean every last Jew? No. Since the fullness of, of the Gentiles... Uh, um, doesn't mean every last Gentile. But also, a, a further clue is given us 
in the rest of verse 26. Here, um, he, uh, Paul is, is quoting again from, from uh, well, this time from Isaiah. The deliverer, the Savior, will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That is, what all Israel will be saved means is God will cleanse the, the um, uh, well, a better translation, the deliverer will come from Zion and will turn away ungodly deeds from Jacob. That's a better translation uh, of the Hebrew, uh, of the Greek here and the Hebrew that lies behind it. Actually, the Greek is the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of, of the Old Testament. So, so turn away ungodly deeds from Jacob. That's what all Israel will be saved means. Now, this has happened in the past, in the past history of Israel. Think of when God, when, when, when there were plenty of ungodly deeds in Jacob in the 6th century B.C., and because of it, God s- sent Israel into exile to Babylon, right? Uh, he was disciplining them. And they were disciplined, and they repented for the most part under the ministry of Jeremiah and also Ezekiel in Babylon. And so then after 70 years of this discipline, God lets them come back, and it's a, it's a chastened Israel. It's a repentant Israel. We see in Ezra and Nehemiah, right? But did every last Jew at that time totally repent? No, Ezra... Ezra and Nehemiah had to deal with unrepentant Jews who were not willing to do what they said, and they were God's appointed leaders for them at the time. So, just as in the past, Israel coming back to his father means most, but not all. So, too, in the future, when Paul says all Israel will be saved, it'll mean most Jews, but not all. So, one day, Israel at the end of the fullness of the Gentiles, we don't know when that's going to be. It could be very soon. Who knows? But one day Israel will become jealous, and the result will be spectacular, as Paul says at the end of the verse here. If their trespass, that is the majority of Jews in the first century rejecting their Messiah, meant riches for the world, if their failure meant riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? I think there's four lessons we can take away from this. First, we need to continue to bring the good news, that's what gospel means literally in Greek, uh, euangelion, the good news of the Messiah to our our Jewish friends. Uh, There are no two ways to God, one for Jews and one for Gentiles, as some theologians teach. Paul makes that very clear. Paul, throughout his, his, his career after the road to Damascus, and especially when, uh, when he's a missionary going into what's now Turkey and Greece and then even Italy, he always goes first to the synagogue. And he tries to persuade the Jews in the synagogue. But, of course, they weren't all Jews. A lot of the people in the synagogues back then were Gentiles, righteous Gentiles, what Luke calls God-fearers, who didn't want to become Jews, but knew they could 
have a share in the age to come by following, by following what the rabbis later called the Noahic commandments, uh, basically the Ten Commandments, you know, without becoming full-fledged Jews, you know, without you know, the men getting circumcised and so forth. And so the synagogues were full of Jews and these Gentile God-fearers, and Paul always went first to the um, synagogue to try to persuade his fellow Jews that their Messiah has indeed come. We should do the same. But uh, um, number two, with sensitivity and humility. The Holocaust has changed everything for Jews, and we need to realize that. Most Jews today know someone either closely or distantly in their own family who suffered in the Holocaust, torture, and mostly death. And most Jews, when they think of the Holocaust, they think of people claiming to be Christians, you know, Germans going to church on Sunday and killing Jews on Monday. You know, most of us would say, well, they weren't real Christians. But, but for Jews, they were Christians. And this was the most Christian country in Europe. You know, you know, Germany, the birthplace of the Reformation. And, you know, for Jews, Germany represents, a Christian nation represents Christianity. So, so for most Jews, just hearing the, world, the, the, the words gospel, Jesus, Christian, church, makes them think of the ovens of Auschwitz. And they know the long history of Christian institutional persecution of Jews in Russia and all over Europe. And now it's heating up again in Europe. So, and the other thing is, most Jews think that when we Christians try to persuade them about Jesus as their Messiah, they think, oh yeah, okay, I know what you're up to. You're trying to de-Judaize Israel. That is, you're trying to take more Jews out of the synagogue and put them in the church where they'll no longer practice their Judaism. They'll no longer be known as Jews. They'll simply be known as Christians. And we already have this huge problem of our numbers going down. I mean, you know, Hitler killed six million of us. Our numbers are not increasing each year. If anything, they're going down a little bit. And, and this will just means fewer. And then you, you, know, you take them out of the synagogue, and you know, they get married, and they have kids. And what are they going to raise them as? Are they going to raise them as, as Christians and not Jews, knowing nothing of their Jewish heritage? We don't want that. You are, this will further diminish us as a people. So we need to be aware of that, very, very sensitive to that. Third, at the same time, if we have Jewish friends or relatives who are open, we, we can suggest to them that the four things that have historically kept Jews and Christians apart in the minds of both Jews and Christians no longer need be an obstacle. The first is resurrection. Both Jews, most Jews and Christians have both thought, well, well, that's a Christian thing. That's not a Jewish thing. This resurrection of Jesus uh, uh, from the dead, you know, that's not, you know, we Jews don't do that. Well, John Levinson, this great Orthodox Jewish scholar at Harvard, published a book a few years ago in which the thesis of the book of which was that resurrection is Jewish. Second, law. 
Unfortunately, millions of Christians still believe today and have been taught for millennia that Jesus set us free from the law. And Jesus proved by sending his disciples to pluck the grains on the Sabbath that he was rejecting the Mosaic law. False and false. Some of the, rabbi, some of the rabbis and what the Mishnah, and uh, what's now published as the Mishnah, Mishnah, taught that the principle of the Sabbath is always to save life. And if you're famished on the Sabbath, and it might affect your health or, or even your life, you are permitted to glean as gleaners when you go by a grain field. And Jesus was appealing to that. Jesus was Torah observant. Paul was Torah observant, contrary to the claims of many teachers and even, and even scholars. Um, third, and when Paul says in Romans, and I'm sure Jason has told you, when Paul says in Romans 10.4 that, that Jesus, that, that the Messiah is the end of the law, the word is telos, not end as in finishing, but end as in purpose. That's what the Greek word means. Christ is the fulfillment of the law, as he said himself in Matthew 5.17. I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle. So law is not the obstacle that we thought it was. Third, the concept of incarnation. Most Jews and most Christians have said, well, you know, the Jews don't believe in incarnation, and we do. And Michael Wishagrod, who's a world-famous um, Jewish philosopher, still alive, said, hey, that ain't true. Incarnation is very Jewish. We've all, Jews have always believed that Yahweh incarnates himself in the people of Israel. And the Christian concept of incarnation is simply a specification of that. Now, of course, Michael Wishagrod doesn't believe that Jesus is the incarnation of God, but he says, you know, the Christians are wrong, but it's a Jewish principle that they're using. It is a Jewish principle, incarnation. There's nothing un-Jewish about that that's extremely Jewish. And fourth, the Trinity. But the Trinity is based also on a Jewish principle. And that's the Jewish principle that although God is one, there is differentiation within that oneness. It's not a mathematical oneness. It's a complex oneness. And you see that in Genesis 1. It talks about God and the Spirit of God. You, you see it all through Torah. It talks about God and the Word of God. And Proverbs 8, God and the wisdom of God. In each case, you know, wisdom, word, and spirit are differentiated in some mysterious way from God, and yet God is still one. Differentiation within the oneness of God is a Jewish principle. And so the Trinity is a development of that Jewish principle. So these four things no longer need, in principle, uh, divide Jews and Christians. Of course, they will divide us in the material application of each of the principles. The only thing that really, really divides Jews and Christians, in principle, is the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Fourth, um, we need to take Paul's advice today, well, actually, Paul's advice in the next three chapters, 12 through 15 of Romans. And the theme of 12 through 15 of Romans is, is to walk in love. 
We need to motivate our Jewish friends. We need to reach out to our Jewish friends with love. Uh, many Messianic Jews who have come to see Yeshua as their Messiah say it was the love of Gentile Christians who drew them, far more than the arguments, far more than the books they gave them to read. I, I mean, arguments are good, and books are good, but it was the love in their personal relationships that really drew them. So as Paul says in chapter 13, owe no one anything except love, for the one who walks in love fulfills Torah. Um, let us pray. Father, we are, we pray that you send your spirit. We are ever dependent every minute on your spirit, and we pray that you send your spirit to show us how to reach out to our Jewish friends and help us to make concrete your love for them through our little lives. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.